in the Middle East, for some, that's what the Abraham Accords already achieved. For others, it's the resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that has eluded Washington's peacemaking industry for decades. Today we're joined by Ambassador Martin Index to talk about the lessons he learned from studying the 1970s shuttle diplomacy of Henry Kissinger and how those lessons might be applied to the Middle East today. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 26 of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Rich, we have a special guest today. So without further ado, let's bring him on. Martin Indyk served as the United States Ambassador to Israel from 1995 to 1997, and again from 2000 to 2001. He also served as Special Assistant to Bill Clinton and Senior Director for Near East and South Asian Affairs at the National Security Council, also Assistant Secretary of State for Near East and Affairs at the State Department, and the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations from 2013 to 2014 was the founding executive director of the Washington Institute, spent years in leadership posts at the Brookings, and is today a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's safe to say that he has forgotten more about the Middle East than most people will ever know. Ambassador Martin Indyk, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jared. Thanks for having me. First, a threshold question to maybe start our conversation. Is the two-state solution dead? And if it is, what can replace it? Well, you know... In the Holy Land, uh, there's a difference between being dead and buried. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, for all intents and purposes, it looks dead at the moment. But I would say uh, that if you look at the other so-called solutions, they're not solutions, they're just recipes for continued conflict. The only solution, even though we don't have a way to get there, that actually resolves the conflict is a two-state solution. Once was explained to me by one of your fellow colleagues, who I'm not going to name on the podcast, but who has been at this a long time. He once told me uh, that we've never been closer on what the deal, in quotes, actually looks like, but we've never been further apart on the psychology and the trust gap between the parties. Would you agree with that statement? Yes, I would say that having uh, laboured in the vineyard for a long time on on what the final status agreement looks like, there is a uh, a way to reconcile the requirements of the two sides, um, but it requires political compromises that are very difficult to effect, and and it's the political circumstances which uh, just make it impossible. Uh, And so that's why I actually have, uh, just to pivot to the book, (laughs) that's why I've actually come to a a conclusion that we shouldn't be trying. Uh, That's the most important point, I would say, that in my long journey of this research for this book, I came to the conclusion that that we should stop trying. And Ambassador, you talk about your new book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of the Middle East Diplomacy. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, you, you summarize a lot of your key arguments and points uh, applying the lessons of Kissinger, saying the Biden administration, as you just said, shouldn't be trying. Go small, go incremental, don't go for big ticket items. How exactly does that work in your mind? So uh, Kissinger, back when he laid the foundations for the Arab-Israeli peace process, in 1973 through 76, uh, as you said, Richard approached it in an incremental way precisely because he did not believe uh, the Arabs or the Israelis were ready 
for the kinds of big steps and painful compromises that would be needed to actually end the conflict. He was deeply sceptical of the idea that you could end conflicts anywhere, but particularly in the Middle East. And therefore, he sought something different, the amelioration of conflict and a balance of power that would stabilize uh, the region and allow for time to adjust on both sides, time for the Arabs, as he said, to exhaust themselves uh, and come to terms with the Jewish state in their midst, and time for Israel to strengthen itself, to reduce its isolation, uh, and to be in a better position to make the necessary tangible concessions for peace when the Arabs were ready. So that was his overall concept, and that's how it would have to work. I think we can say, I think there probably is a consensus uh, on both sides now when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian dimension of this conflict, that neither side is, is ready to, for, the, for the big compromises and the reconciliation that would need to take place. And, and therefore, we need a Kissingerian incremental process in which each side takes smaller steps without defining what the actual outcome should be other than, you know, the general proposition of, a, of an independent Palestinian state uh, living alongside a Jewish state in peace and security. But beyond that, not to try to define it. Leave the end game till later and let's see if, if we can identify steps uh, that start to rebuild confidence, start to build a more positive relationship start to give the Palestinians, in Kissinger's words, the attributes of sovereignty, start to try to create a kind of what he called a state in the making, uh, but not try to push it, uh, just, just try to uh, move it in the right direction as much as the traffic would bear. I do want to ask about that, and it goes back, I guess, to the original question that Jared asked. The question of two states, the question of what is a state, I think sometimes underlies a lot of the conversation. We use the word state. It means something different to different people in the conversation, especially here. Uh, you heard Netanyahu allude to a demilitarized pseudo-state. Uh, you've heard Bennett maybe allude to something less than that. Uh, in, in the history, we think Rabin probably was prepared for that same demilitarized state-type co concept. Begin entertained interesting ideas from Kissinger back then and, and others. What, what would you say is the likely outcome that is practical and pragmatic that would be accepted, or you don't even want to define it right now? Well, no, but we can define it in principle, and I think that is important. I, I like to quote Moisha Dayan, um, who, who said back in the 1960s that the Palestinians should have a right to determine their own future, but should not have the right to determine Israel's future. And, and so, therefore... And Palestinian statehood has to be conditioned in certain ways. You uh, brought up the concept of demilitarization. That is a principle that the Palestinians have accepted um, for some time now, back to the, the 1990s when I was engaged in the peace process with Bill Clinton. The Palestinians accepted it. They haven't gone back on that. Uh, so, so they're ready to give up 
some of the attributes of sovereignty. Uh, but uh, I think that, that you know, if uh, we can talk about that if you like, but as I say, I don't think it's useful at this point to try to get into that other than, than the principle, as I espoused it, in terms of Moshe Dayan and the principle that, that uh, we're talking about peace here. If we're talking about an end of conflict and we're talking about uh, the Palestinian state living in peace and security with an Israeli Jewish state. And so, you know, there are certain requirements of that. A demilitarized Palestinian state is one of them. Is the status of Gaza right now part of the reason why it's also sort of sensical to adopt this incremental approach in the West Bank? Because, and I fault the Trump administration equally as, as the Obama administration as others. We've now, since Gaza has come under the control of Hamas, really just ignored that elephant in the room when we talk about a two-state solution. It, it, it It's nonsensical when you talk about a plan and you say, oh, and by the way, yeah, we'll figure out Gaza. It's like, well, how are you going to figure out Gaza? I'll tell you that, that when I was the special envoy under Secretary of State Kerry and President Obama, and that was the last time that the Israelis and Palestinians engaged in final status negotiations. And, and I sat in the room as a kind of American mediator and, and the Israelis uh, would ask the Palestinians, this is uh, Molcho and, and Tzipi Livni and, and Saab Arakat, and, uh, the late Saab Arakat and, and uh, Majid Farage, the Palestinian intelligence chief. And the Israelis would, would ask, well, what are you going to do about Gaza? If we're talking about a final resolution of the conflict here, what about Gaza? And the Palestinians had no credible answer uh, to what is a reasonable question. It's, it's your question too, Richard. And, and they said, look, once we make the deal, we'll enforce it on, on Gaza. Well, right, you know, <laughs> not very credible. Uh, so it, it was indeed um, the elephant in the room that occasionally everybody would point at, but there was no way to deal with it. And that's another reason why we can't get there from here. Uh, something has to be done there. And I, I think it's interesting that, that Yair Lapid, alternate prime minister and foreign minister now, uh, has laid out a plan which starts with Gaza. And I don't know whether, whether you've, you've looked at that at all. It didn't get a lot of attention. But it started with the proposal for a long-term ceasefire in Gaza, which is something that Hamas has called for. But that would only be the beginning of the process. Then he suggests, and I think is essential, that the Palestinian Authority needs to be reintroduced into Gaza and needs to take control of Gaza. And the reality is that isn't going to happen until Fatah and Hamas reconcile. And Hamas accepts the basic principles of the peace process, which is to accept Israel's right to exist. And we're far from that at the moment. But I think that what, what was useful about Lapid's idea was, again, comes back to this incrementalism. Let's take the first step. Let's try to stabilise the situation in Gaza and then see how the politics on the Palestinian side develops. That's their business. But uh, we need to be clear that you know, the, the end result needs to be that, that Hamas uh, accepts uh, Israel and is willing to reconcile with it. 
which it's not at the moment. Well, I, we have some follow-ups on what you just said, but I, I had a question, something you said earlier about how Kissinger was talking about sort of letting the Arab world tire itself out. And I think we can see, um, and, and I will give some credit to, to former President Trump and his administration. Um, Rich, note the date and time that I'm doing this. But um, that there, there has been some normalization, a great deal of normalization in the Arab world with Israel. And at the same time, uh, things in Western Europe and even in things in parts of progressive America have gotten less um, hospitable to the to the Israeli point of view. Um, I guess, what do you make of that? You know, things in the region seem to be getting better, but the, the Monday morning quarterbacks or the people who are a little bit more further removed from the situation seem to be getting more excised and more strident in their in their take on things. Yes, because that's determined by politics in the United States rather than politics in the region. And I, too, for Richard's benefit, um, give uh, the Trump administration credit for the Abraham Accords, and, but in particular uh, Avi Berkowitz and, and also Jared Kushner, not because they intended uh, to achieve this normalisation, but because when the Emirates came forward, if you remember, it was in the context of of uh, the Trump administration being ready to to kosher uh, an annexation of the Jordan Valley and all of the settlements, uh, that that uh, the Emiratis came forward and said, "We'll we'll normalize if you stop the annexation." And to Kushner and Berkowitz's credit, they pivoted and recognized that there was an opportunity here and got behind it and, and drove it as far as they could in terms of getting the Sudan and, and Bahrain and Morocco on board as well. So, so I do think they deserve credit for that, even though it wasn't their attention. I called Trump the accidental peacemaker in this case, but it was important. And it was important because it was exactly what Kissinger predicted. Kissinger expected that over time, the powers in the region would exhaust themselves and come around to recognizing that they needed to make peace. And, and even though, you know, the Emiratis were not at war with Israel, they were in fact in a tacit alliance against Iran, I think it was either the Ambassador Al-Tabor or, or Mohammed bin Zayed, the, the Emirati leader, who used the word exhausted. He said, we're going to normalize with Israel because we're exhausted by the conflict. Uh, now, it, look how long it took. It was exactly Kissinger's point. If you think, see that the peace process began in 1973, uh, we're talking about almost five decades, but it is now, normalization is now uh, an indication that the Arab world is ready to, to accept Israel. And part of the reason they're ready to accept Israel is strategic, is that, that with the United States downgrading the Middle East in its priorities and focusing elsewhere, particularly on the rise of China in Asia, these Arab countries have to look around for where they can seek an alternate protector. And Israel's the, the, the one reliable power in the region that can help them with that. So it, it, it's, it's going to continue, even though we may not have uh, immediate you know, acts of normalization, that normalization process will continue. And I do believe it will help 
uh, in the end with the process of, of Israeli-Palestinian reconciliation. One of the things you talk about is uh, Kissinger in his idea is to wear down the Arab will to fight uh, over several years in this incremental approach, making them accept Israel's presence as a fait accompli. Uh, you said, uh, did you put it, to, quote, to exhaust the Arabs on the assumption that they would eventually be more receptive to ending the conflict while buying Israel time to reduce its isolation and strengthen itself with American assistance? I think in some ways you could see some of the policies of the Trump administration, the Abraham Accords, obviously being uh, one big element of normalization without having resolved the Palestinian issue, which must have turned heads in Ramallah and made them feel pretty isolated of how are we holding out for these big ideas and big symbols that are never going to happen. The Arab world's moving without us, but also the donor fatigue uh, for UNRWA, an institution that is really built on the idea of a protracted conflict, the moving of the U.S. embassy. Uh, are, you know, are these things that still sort of help wear down the will of the Palestinians to resist any incremental steps and also help their people sort of prepare for peace, abandon these big ticket items that are never going to happen? First of all, I'd say that that um, the Palestinian, the PLO, in, uh, in effect, the Palestinian Authority, do not get enough credit for the fact that they have already significantly lowered their expectations. Um, and and people always poo-poo this when I say it, but it's actually true. Demilitarization is is an example uh, of the way in which they've accepted uh, uh, giving up one of the attributes of sovereignty. Uh, the willingness to accept uh, territorial swaps, uh, something no other Arab state has been prepared to do in its in making peace with Israel. Uh, their their uh, acceptance of uh, the idea that uh, Arab suburbs, excuse me, Israeli suburbs, the Jewish suburbs in uh, Arab East Jerusalem would, would be annexed by Israel, would become part of Israeli sovereign territory. You know, people scoff and say, well, you know, Jerusalem's ours and big deal. But for the Palestinians, that is a big deal. The biggest concession from their point of view, from their point of view, I want to emphasize, is, is that they accepted that they would have a Palestinian state in in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, and uh, they would drop their claims to to pre sixty seven Israel. So there has been over time a a uh, wearing down of Palestinian demands as well. Uh, but the other point I think it's worth making now is that the the Bennett Lapid uh, administration government in Israel is taking some steps now in a Kissingerian way. Uh, they're economic steps mostly, but they, they are being received positively by the Palestinians. Uh, they're not being rejected by them. They're doing things that actually the Palestinians benefit from, whether it's a kind of family reunion and giving giving undocumented Palestinians uh, uh, papers, which is very important to, to uh, many Palestinian families, allowing uh, more Palestinians permits to come and, and work in Israel from Gaza to do business in Israel. Uh, these are important first steps. And there's another one that hasn't gotten much attention, but I think is very important, is that, that they are going to be giving... Palestinians' permits to build in Area C, the area that 
Israel completely controls, and that Bennett's own party and the right wing in Israel want to annex all of Area C to Israel, and yet they're prepared to give the Palestinians permits to build there up to 1,000, I think it's actually up to 1,500 housing units in Area C. That establishes an important principle and signals to the Palestinians that Area C is not going to be solely for Israel's use. We're talking about 60% of the West Bank, so it's a big deal for the Palestinians. Ambassador, uh, we have a new ambassador to Israel about to be confirmed, live and be well. You served as the United States ambassador to Israel twice uh, and was wondering if you had any advice for Tom Nides as he goes into this job. Um, I'm sure you guys know each other and, and talk not on the Jewish Insider Limited Liability Podcast. But if you had any advice for him that you wanted to share with us, uh, we'd love to hear it. So I've had several conversations with with uh, uh, Ambassador-designate Nides, uh, and I am confident that he will do very well there. He's a, he's a really charming, smart, and most importantly of all, well-connected ambassador in Washington and in the White House, which will be very important. Um, so, you know, my, my advice to him is get ready for, the, for, for a great ride, the most enjoyable and most interesting job I've ever had was in Israel. It was a reason why I went twice. Uh, every door will be open to him and, and every Israeli will have an opinion. And the wonderful thing about that is that the opinions change Every week, um, the same people change change their arguments. They they use Shabbat to hone their talking points, <laughs> and it's the most uh, interesting, intellectually stimulating um, conversations that I've ever had uh, were, were with Israelis. So, uh, uh, my advice to him is: go uh, enjoy yourself because it's going to be you're going to have a great time. And, and Ambassador, do you think uh, he's going to be focused on the Abraham Accords? Are they just a fact of life and that will be part of his every day? Or do you think he's going to go in a different direction? Look, the ambassador follows instructions from Washington. He's not a, an independent actor. Um, there, was a, there was an exception um, in, during the Trump administration when the ambassador, uh, I think, Tried to pursue his own agenda, but in the end, he was he he was uh, pulled up short um, by by uh, the White House. So he, he will follow the process. Now, what you're implying, I think, in your question is that um, the Biden administration has somehow been uh, less enthusiastic about the Abraham Accords uh, than the Trump administration. That it's, it was a kind of not invented here. Uh, attitude and and so they've been slow to embrace it. Uh, I, I would I would know Jared asked the question, not me. But, but thank you for well, <laughs> I, 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 for explaining my view. That's good. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm just asking the question. I think they're to- totally on board. But I'd like to. You're the expert. I'm not. <laughs> well, I do think they are on board. And why wouldn't they be? It's a it, it's a, it's a good thing. Uh, there's no reason to be against it. I do think that they that they hesitated at first to pursue the kind of bargain that the Trump administration had negotiated in which the United States was paying Arab states to normalize with Israel. 
uh, and and in particular with the recognition of Moroccan sovereignty in the Western Sahara, uh, it, they, I think they felt that this was, you know, had 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 the arrangement wrong. It's that Israel and the Arabs should be, you know, making commitments to each other and that the value of normalization should be in the relationship with Israel. They shouldn't have to be paid by the United States for it. Um, but uh, I think that that now that, you know, we the administration has withdrawn from Afghanistan, wants to focus elsewhere, understands that to do that will have to, in a Kissingerian way, normalize uh, and calm things down and and establish a balance of power in the region that will stabilize things. Normalization will be an important element in that because if you think about it, where are the stabilizing factors in the region? It's, it's the relationship between Israel and the Sunni Arab states in which the United States needs to shift from dominating the region, which we've done for the last five decades, to supporting local allies in partnership, stabilizing the region. And Egypt, Jordan, and, and the Gulf Arab states and Israel together are the ones that, that need to do that. And normalization becomes part of the glue uh, in that alliance system that we need to be supporting as what we call the offshore balancer. Ambassador, I take your point on the unease, discomfort with the transactional nature uh, in the Morocco context uh, as compared to the Abraham Accords parties uh, of dealing with normalization. Uh, but, you know, one country in particular, obviously, that we're all sort of waiting for and we thought might happen at the end of the Trump administration, I think a, a lot of people have been surprised has not happened in Saudi Arabia. The administration came in with a very different approach to the Saudis, really reset the relationship. I think the Saudis have been still sort of on hold saying, what is this relationship at present? In some ways, an advantage now to come in if you wanted to with a very sort of disoriented, you know, Saudi government who, that's waiting to see what this administration will do to recommit to a U.S.-Saudi framework that includes Saudi normalization with Israel, which I would think would also contribute, as you've spoken before, to continuing to wear down the Palestinians in some way to understand even Riyadh is normalizing. You have to accept the reality of the region and come to some pragmatic terms uh, of your approach to the Israeli conflict. There are several factors there if we can unpack it. Um, First of all, uh, conversation, long conversation just took place between the National Security Advisor and, and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And according to reports, they they had an in-depth discussion about normalization. And again, according to reports, uh, the the crown prince was very transactional about it. He wanted a whole lot of things from the United States for normalizing with Israel. So we go back to that kind of kind of uh, uh, problem, and it's a problem because uh, you know MBS, as he's known. Uh, is not exactly a responsible actor in in this Kissingerian model of how how to reestablish order. His his uh, war, war in Yemen, 
the way he handles oil prices, um, not to speak of the, the murder of Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. I mean, all of these things uh, suggest that, that we need to have, have a broader understanding with him in which normalization is important. But it's also important to understand that Saudi Arabia is not the Emirates. The Emirates is a small uh, country that, that is cosmopolitan, that has a majority non-Emirati uh, population that you know has has none of the kind of Arab hang-ups about Israel. Uh, they're a small country that can move uh, with agility. Saudi Arabia is a big country. Um, the, their people have been brought up on a diet of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, um, and and uh, it's harder uh, to move them. And, and then there's the king, who's still the king, who has a, an attachment to Jerusalem as the custodian of the, of the two holy mosques uh, and, and uh, the leader of the Islamic world. And so uh, they're, they're not going to just normalize with Israel like the Emiratis or the Moroccans have done. Uh, and it's unrealistic uh, to expect that, uh, you know, just because MBS talks a good game, that his daddy is going to let him do it. In fact, I think he, you know, he, he's he's basically gone some ways by allowing for you know uh, Israeli uh, commercial aircraft to use uh, the air corridor over Saudi Arabia and um, encouraging Bahrain to normalize. Bahrain is a kind of satrapy of, of Saudi Arabia, um, but. But there are, there are limits to how far they're going to go without um, movement on the Palestinian front. And again, it's movement that they're looking for. Incrementalism fits with that, that effort to uh, get normalization with Saudi Arabia. And that's how we should look at it, as a process in which the Saudis take steps towards normalization with Israel, not jump to the end game, because they're not going to do that. Maybe when MBS becomes king, it'll be a different story. But then he's going to have to take steps towards us as well on the broader issues of stabilizing the region. That you know he's been an, a destabilizing factor, and and he needs a, a, a lesson in Kissingerian principles uh, uh, before I think all of this is going to to move in the direction that we want it to. To what extent do you think that the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem and the lack of conflagration throughout the region that was expected? I know you, you had written back in December 2016, like many others, you know, this would likely spark an explosion of anger in the Palestinian, Arab and Muslim worlds, generate a rallying cry for Islamic extremists everywhere. Uh, you went on there. That, that didn't happen. There was, you know, immediate outrage, some press releases, a UN resolution, and then the world moved on, the embassies in Jerusalem. Uh, are there sacred cows? Are these symbols that, that you know, we spent decades believing you couldn't touch? I mean, third rails, maybe they are not third rails anymore in the Arab world. Yeah, I think that's true of some things. Um, I think that, that the uh, argument that you make is fair enough. But it does exclude the damaging effect that the move of the embassy to Jerusalem had. By the way, I, I was always in favor of recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. 
I, uh, I helped to write the first first paper that APAC put out on this that justified the uh, the uh, embassy uh, legislation that Daniel Patrick Moynihan was the first person to move this. I'm talking now about the early 80s. So, so you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the issue is not whether it, Jerusalem should be recognized as Israel's capital. It's a question of, of whether this was the right time to do it. I mean, the Trump administration, President Trump himself declared that he was going to make peace between Israel and the Palestinians and and appointed Jared Kushner to do that job. And, and what happened with the movement of the, of the embassy in recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital was that the administration lost the ability to talk to the Palestinians. And from that point on, there was no dialogue whatsoever with the Palestinian authority. And, and so the chances of actually being able to advance a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was lost. And their plan for imposing peace on the Palestinians uh, never got out of the starting gate because they never talked to the Palestinians and there was no way in which the Palestinians were going to accept it. So, you know, we can yes, we can point to the fact that predictions like my own that this would have a very negative effect in terms of violence didn't come about, and, and that's a good thing. But let's not forget the negative things that did happen. And, and uh, you know, people too, too quickly uh, dismiss that and think that, that everything is fine. It doesn't help to resolve the problem of, of Jerusalem. There were things that they could have done when they recognised uh, Israel as Jerusalem's capital that, that would have avoided the damage done to to the ability to advance the peace process, um, but they ch- they chose not to do any of those things, and I think that that has left uh, a problem there, which needs to be addressed. Which is why the Biden administration is trying to address it in a in a low key way by opening the consulate again in Jerusalem, but this is now becoming a huge political issue in Israel and, and part of the kind of zero-sum game of the, of, of the Jerusalem issue, um, which, uh, again, goes back to why it's necessary to have a Kissingerian-style incremental approach. Ambassador, uh, thank you for bringing that up. That was actually going to be my next question. Um, you know, Rich and others who uh, are like-minded with him decry the opening of a diplomatic outpost in East Jerusalem to serve the residents there. And what I always ask Rich, and he rolls his eyes at me every time I ask it, is what's the big deal? Uh, this is a group of people, um, a national group of people who we don't have a great relationship with as a, as a country in the, in the Palestinian people. Shouldn't we want more diplomacy with, with them, not less? Uh, and isn't opening a, uh, uh, you know, a consulate there a good thing while we wait for the parties, as you said, to resolve the final status issues on their own, on their own time frame. What's what's the big deal here? Well, I don't think it is a big deal, but 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 what you've got is a situation in in Israel where um, the opposition parties, the right wing and, and religious parties in the opposition, see this as a as a way as a wedge issue to try to break up the coalition, uh, and so it's it's 
you know, Kissinger always used to say that Israel doesn't have a foreign policy, it only has domestic politics. And this is an example. That's, that's what this is about. Um, the Israeli government, um, the Begin government, the Shamir government, the, the Netanyahu governments, all of them accepted a, a consulate in Jerusalem that, that uh, ministered to the Palestinians. Um, and nobody ever made an issue of it before. And, and now, if you think about it, the Biden administration, like the Trump administration, has recognized that Jerusalem is Israel's capital, has, uh, is not moving the embassy out again. It's all there. Nobody's questioning that. The question is, what do you do about the 350,000 Palestinians who are not Israeli citizens in Jerusalem? And, and you know, again, if, you, if, you, if you're looking to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Jerusalem is not going to be uh, a, a, a Palestinian-free zone. They're not going to settle in the end for a capital and two outlying suburbs uh, that are actually villages that were not part of Jerusalem, which was being offered to them in the, in the Trump plan. Um, so, you know, there are ways of resolving this. It will be, in the end, the last issue that gets resolved. But in the meantime, um, a, a small act uh, designed to demonstrate that uh, the United States recognizes that Palestinians have aspirations in Jerusalem too, uh, is, is, I think, uh, something that, that the Israeli government would be wise to to accept and, and, and move on. Because in the end, if they don't, uh, you know, the, the, the administration, whether it's the Biden administration or the next administration, will end up doing something else that, that Israelis will like even less to demonstrate that uh, they recognize Palestinian aspirations in Arab East Jerusalem. Well, I, I want to get back to the book, but but since my name was taken in vain, I, I will just give the <laughs> counter argument uh, on behalf of those who are like minded, as Jared said. I would just say if the idea here is to have diplomatic relations with the government uh, of the Palestinian Authority, the seat of that government is in Ramallah. And we're not talking about opening a diplomatic outpost in Ramallah. We're talking about putting it in Jerusalem. It's not East Jerusalem, as I understand it. It's West Jerusalem that they're looking at on a grown street, which is highly problematic. But in general, all of this is obviously calling into question whether or not the U.S. at this point recognizes Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem. I can't think of an example where we would open a diplomatic post without the consent of the sovereign government, the host government, to allow us to do that. If your concern is consular services, the embassy already provides consular services. So I, I really do think this is at this point we're here. I understand it now implicates all these final status issues over Jerusalem, which is probably the most tense, the most emotional for all sides. But from a U.S. law perspective, from a U.S. diplomatic perspective, if the Israelis say no, I don't understand how you go and open up the consulate over their objections. But does that mean you would be happier with with a consulate in East Jerusalem as opposed to Agron Street? My personal view is if the Israeli government wanted to open, uh, uh, we asked them to open a consulate under the U.S. Embassy Jerusalem 
in East Jerusalem for consular service of the Palestinians, that would be fine. It would be appropriate based on what we do in the State Department. But back to the book for a moment, if I could. (laughs) In your review of your book, Walter Russell Mead had an outstanding uh, opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, I I thought, as, as he is always eloquent. He writes... Quote, in the Middle East, many Democrats yearn to impose a peace settlement on Israel that provides for Palestinian statehood, but they also want to reduce American commitments in the region. This will not work. We cannot simultaneously wash our hands of the Middle East and knead it into shape. I I thought that was an interesting part of his review because I remember you having a very seminal piece uh, early last year uh, where you wrote the headline was, the Middle East isn't worth it anymore. and, And you talked about needing a new uh, way of thinking about the Middle East, if, if you know, as we draw down uh, large military commitments, how do you square what what Walter is getting at there with the Kissingerian approach to the Middle East? Yeah, well, as I as I lay out in in, in the book, um, Kissinger's approach begins with a balance of power, uh, and that is the way to establish uh, order and stability, uh, and. And that's what he did after the 1973 Yom Kippur War in trying to refashion the balance of power in the region that that would be dominated by the United States, but that would favor America's allies in the region, uh, especially, of course, Israel. And and, uh, it was that balance of power uh, which created the environment in which it became possible to move towards peace. But for Kissinger, having a the peace process as a, as a mechanism was critical to the balance of power. It wasn't just the balance of power would make peacemaking possible. It was that peacemaking was essential to stabilizing the order. And so it is today. Uh, there needs to be uh, a balance of power at a time when the United States is reducing its its commitment to the region. How does the United States, and this is what Walter Russell Mead was pointing out in his op-ed, how does the United States do that? And, and what I argue is that it, we have to, we cannot afford simply to turn our back on the region because we know from past experience that if we don't find a way to tend to the the, the region's destabilizing forces and its grievances, we will be dragged back in again. You can already see it in the case of Iran as it moves towards a nuclear weapons threshold that we're going we're gonna to be ending up having to deal with that problem rather than, you know, focusing only on the rise of China or climate change or so. And so... We have to look at how to establish a balance of power in the region in which our role is much less. And as I said earlier on in in our conversation, that requires us to get behind an alliance of Israel and and the Sunni Arab states and at the same time work with them to calm things down, to reduce the conflicts in the region and to have an incremental peace process Uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians as a way of, um, say, stabilizing the order. Because while, Rich, you know, you were right that moving the embassy didn't explode things, it can explode. 
and and just like Kissinger was surprised when when uh, the Yom Kippur War broke out because Egypt and, and Syria launched war because of their grievances weren't being addressed. It can explode on the Palestinian side. I mean, remember how concerned the Israelis were that the prison break of six Palestinian prisoners might spark a conflagration. Uh, it, it is very tense. We've got, I think, a crazy policy going on of, of allowing Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. That's incendiary stuff. And maybe it won't blow. And maybe we can just, just assume that everything's going to be right. But unless we, you know, we know from past experience that unless you're pedaling forward, it's the bicycle theory, unless you're pedaling forward, sooner or later you're going to fall off. And, and so that's why we need a, a peace process, not an end of conflict agreement that, that is part and parcel of, of a uh, newly engineered uh, balance of power in the region in which the United States plays a supporting role. And by the way, an incremental process doesn't require the kind of high-level American intervention that the peace process that uh, seeks to end the conflict would. One last question for me and then one from Jared, and I think we'll get to our fun lightning round, a little more lighthearted. On on the Palestinian issue, my last question is, we don't really speak about the succession plan or lack thereof for Mahmoud Abbas and the legitimacy issues in place there and what will happen the day after he is no longer uh, the president. Uh, are you concerned that that is something that either is not being addressed by the administration, not being addressed by the Israelis? Is it, do you think it's going on behind the scenes, just nobody wants to talk about it? And, and how will that element of all of this play into your approach? Look, self-government for the Palestinians, whether it's autonomy or statehood, means self-government. It's their business. It's not Israel's business and it's not the United States' business to decide who will lead the Palestinians. And and we need to stay out of it. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas at some point will pass from the scene uh, and and there will be a struggle for power and a succession process. And, and, you know, it's really important that we keep our hands off that because we know from past experience that Trying to engineer this is going to lead to a bad end. It won't be a legitimate leader and we won't be able to, to rely on that leader to actually lead the Palestinians. So uh, I think we just have to, to uh, watch and wait and, and see uh, what emerges. Uh, I think that, that um, there are, you know, the candidates, there are three, four, five candidates you could name, but it's impossible to tell who, who will emerge in the end. At this point, and we should just just uh, sit back and, and and wait and see. I do think, uh, and I concluded in the negotiations that I was involved in, and I write about this in in the book as well, that there needed to be a change of leadership on both sides uh, before you could actually make make significant progress. Uh, it's another reason why you need small incremental steps rather than attempt to jump to the end game. And, and um, you know, that new leadership 
Uh, we have a new leadership on the, on the Israeli side, but it's a paralyzed leadership when it comes to the Palestinians because the coalition uh, of left and right parties means they don't agree on what to do on the Palestinians. But again, there are, there are ways of moving forward and they're doing that. We need uh, a new leadership on the Palestinian side that can, I think, produce an opportunity then for, for more movement. And we should, the United States should be ready for that when and, and if it occurs. Um, but I would say one other thing, uh, and, and, and quote Kissinger on this, that, that he always said that the Palestinian issue is Israel's problem, not America's problem. And I believe that's right. And that is something I wrote in that Wall Street Journal piece that you, you quote to. It's Israel's problem to address. The United States, because we care about the survival and well-being of Israel, should support Israel, should help Israel take the risks for peace that would be involved. But in the end, it's Israel that's got to come to terms with its Palestinian neighbours. And the United States should be positioning itself as dictating to Israel what it should do in this case. Israel, Israel is going to have to take responsibility. It has the power, it has the control, it has the resources to address the Palestinians. Uh, it, it needs to do it for its own good. It needs to recognise that it needs to do it for its own good. And, and you know, then, as, as Kissinger argued, what's necessary is a process that is not just economic, that is also political, that gives the Palestinians attributes of sovereignty and enables them to have a state in the making, his words. And he said that if Israel doesn't do so, it's going to con consume its moral substance if it re relies only on, on uh, the use of force to maintain its occupation. Uh, so I think that that, that that is the way forward. So, Ambassador, one last substantive question, and then we have a couple of fun ones. Uh, you helped run and oversee the Saban Forum in Washington for many years. Uh, we haven't had a Saban Forum for some time. Do you think there will ever be another Saban Forum or something like it in the coming years? We could do it live from there next time. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. We could have a live simulcast uh, on Jewish Insider Limited Liability podcast. I've, look, the Saban Forum, um, which I conceived and, and – and uh, put into practice in partnership with Haim Saban, uh, was designed to have a uh, dialogue between high-level officials and, and other interested parties uh, in the United States and Israel um, in, a, in an area, a kind of zone of trust where you could actually engage and speak candidly and, and, and try to uh, reach better understandings. And it, it worked very well for 12, 13 years uh, until it didn't because it became a dialogue of the deaf. And, and that's why we essentially decided that it didn't make sense to do it anymore. I think that there is a, there is a great potential for a new kind of dialogue, not just between the United States and Israel, but also a trilateral between the United States, Israel and, and the Arab states, including countries like Saudi Arabia. Uh, so that's what I'd like to see uh, emerge as, as a kind of new reinvention of, of the Saban Forum. But uh, that depends on how it's about to. 
Well, I'd, I'd be eager to work with you on something like that. That sounds like an exciting idea, quite, quite frankly, something we, sh- we should have. Uh, the lightning round. Uh, very first question. Your favorite Yiddish or Hebrew word f- or phrase? Yiddish profanity is certainly allowed if you have one. <laughs> we have a rated TV YA, Yiddish yeah. audience. Uh, chutzpah. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, favorite Jewish or Israeli food? Borekas from uh, Brim uh, over on the Upper West Side. Um, great, great Borekas. That's excellent. I think you're the first to say Borekas. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, I couldn't say awful, but I actually like Borekas. What can I tell you? <laughs> and uh, beside your own, best book you've read recently that you'd recommend to others? Uh, Evan Osnos's Wildland. Great book. Excellent. Ambassador Martin Indyk, thank you so much for joining us on Jewish Insiders Limited. Oh, yes. Well, of course, we're talking about it throughout. We're going to read your book. Everyone's going to read your book. Uh, we, we look forward to having you back at some point on the podcast. Ambassador Indyk, thank you. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. us. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Rich. Jared, uh, I don't agree with everything he had to say, but it was a spirited conversation, uh, great intellect, uh, great conversation, wonderful to have him on, and we definitely uh, recommend his book. It's already getting uh, great reviews. If you're a Henry Kissinger fan, uh, if you follow the Middle East, uh, this one will be spectacular. Absolutely, Rich. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah.